Uh, new community, how are we doing today? Pretty good, right? Uh, how many people enjoyed waking up to the sunshine this morning? Yeah. Hey, drink it in, because we won't have that again for about another three or four months. So just uh, let that ride with you. Um, second week of Advent, I'm incredibly glad to be here with you this morning. And I'm going to start my message this morning uh, with everybody's favorite topic, bias. All right? Bias is something that we have discussed in this place a few times before, typically in reference to how you interpret something. But this morning, I'm going to make what I'm calling an Advent confession, that I am biased in my theology, that there is one aspect of God's movement in history, one core orthodox belief that I find far more compelling than others. And in this way, my bias has become a sort of filter for my understanding and how God orients himself in my life. Now, I don't think oftentimes people like to admit their biases. We like to say that we don't have them, but we know we all have them. And uh, we can oftentimes point these biases out in other people's lives far quicker than we can in our own lives. <clears throat> Usually, you can spot this at the uh, Thanksgiving dinner table a couple weeks ago when you had one relative sitting there and you can see that their bias about God might be a bias of judgment, that that is the type of God that they believe in. But I think it's important that we acknowledge it, that we acknowledge our own biases. So right now, take a minute, close your eyes. Think about the thing, the maybe one, two things in your life about God that most captures your heart. Think about what theological bias might you hold right now? The thing that you are most compelled about when you think about God, when you think about faith. Now I'm guessing some of us in here, in that moment, maybe thought about the unmerited grace that's freely offered. Like, that's the thing that captures your heart when you think about God. Maybe it's the resurrected Christ. The fact that Christ conquers death. And you're, you always kind of seem to come back to this idea of the resurrected Christ. Or maybe it's the unfathomable love of God. That that's the thing that captures your heart. Maybe it's God's heart for, uh, for justice, like I'm guessing my friend Joseph, wherever he is at in the crowd, probably said, right? And you can see that in his message, right? As he speaks up here, there's this deep, deep heart that's connected with this idea of God's justice. For me, it's the incarnation. And I don't really know why, other than in my 20-plus years of faith, the action of God becoming a human being in Jesus is the theological belief that I most seem to orbit around just in who I understand God to be. And it's my bias, and it gives shape to how I live my faith out every single day. And I actually feel totally fine with this because I think I could argue that C.S. Lewis feels the same way, and so anytime you kind of like mirror something that C.S. Lewis does, you can be like, oh, okay, then I'm probably in the right. So here, 
Here is something that he says in his book, Miracles. The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. And this is where he gets real C.S. Lewis-y in this next two sentences, so kind of hang with me. Just as every natural event is the manifestation at a particular place and moment of nature's total character, so every particular Christian miracle manifests at a particular place and moment the character and significance of the Incarnation. There is no question in Christianity of arbitrary uh, interferences just scattered about. It relates not a series of disconnected raids on nature, but the various steps of a strategically coherent invasion. An invasion which intends complete conquest and occupation. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depend on their relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. So the grand miracle, as Lewis calls it, is the center of the season of Advent and really the center of the celebration of Christmas. It's about God taking on flesh, becoming Emmanuel or God with us. So this morning, I want to briefly look at four individual accounts that I believe speak to the reason that the incarnational reality should shape our lives every single day. God's withness has been a part and parcel of God's character since the beginning, the garden, often referred to as paradise. It was not so because of the lush landscape or the access to exotic fruits, but because of the presence of God. God's full character and being and beauty contained in this place, accessible and present to the created. This is paradise. It was lost in Genesis 3, not because the garden dies, not because the fruit spoils or the animals migrate away, but because relationship is fractured. The closeness once freely available had changed. The entire creation story is built upon God's desire to be with the creation and specifically to be with humanity. But as each of us have experienced to varying degrees, the reality of sin and brokenness and pain and hurt in our world fractures this withness, just like it did in the garden when Adam and Eve chose something other than God. The story of the Old Testament continues, primarily with God's movement towards people and their continued frailty and stubbornness. All along the way, though, their hope is placed in the promise of a coming king, that God will provide a Messiah to be with and to redeem his people. And hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting, and then in a dark and dank and dingy stable in a forgotten corner of the world, God takes on flesh and fulfills his promise. Jesus is born. And in this moment, especially for that teenage mother, there is a brief and veiled return to the reality that God initially intended. Paradise realized. 
Now, I have never been a mother, but I imagine that there are few moments in life that are more profound than when a mother holds her new child. After months of waiting and days of uncertainty and hours of pain, out of the chaos, pure joy and love and beauty are born because mother is finally with her child. We all know the scandalous scene of Mary's birth and even a few random strangers barging into the stable with stories of appearing angels. And yet the scripture says this, Luke 2.19, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. She was unaffected by all that was going on around her. And there is a deep sense of presence and settledness in this statement because in that moment, she was experiencing God's original intention of witness as she held her newborn son. Out of the chaos, the incarnation always brings peace. And after 33 years and 21 chapters of the Gospel of Luke, at the very end of his life, Jesus hangs on the cross in between two criminals, themselves arguing about who this man in the middle could be. And in his anger, one accuses that if Jesus really is the Christ, then he should simply be able to save them all. And the other, on the other side, after a life of transgression, humbly turns towards Jesus, asking to be remembered. And Jesus responds in that moment, Luke 23, 43, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. What do you hear in that statement? With me is the phrase that I hear. And another moment where the inbreaking reality of the incarnation cuts through the chaos and the confusion and the pain that the man was experiencing as he was slowly dying for his crimes. The promise extended in this statement from Jesus is quite literally the promise of a return to the garden state. Not as a physical place, but as a place of being. Being with God. Now, deep theological thought has been given to this specific sentence in Scripture for many, many years. But I wonder if maybe it's not as complicated as we've made it out to be. What if Jesus recognizes that the simple act of being with him, orienting one's life toward him as king, is a foretaste of God's original intention, becoming a reality again. It didn't matter what the man had done or who the man was. Hope was freely given to him as he hung there next to Jesus. Because in our pain, the incarnation always brings hope. In the summer of 1994, <clears throat> in the summer of 1994, as a 7th grader, I experienced a kind of witness that I will never forget. I had just recently learned how to play golf at Pine Acres Par 3. How many people have played at Pine Acres before? Six of us. Uh, it is a wonderful Par 3 course, uh, far out north. And uh, I, a friend invited me, and I went out and uh, learned how to swing a club and really enjoyed it and played two or three times. And so 
uh, when a foursome at the uh, Spokane Country Club came up as an auction at a local nonprofit's fundraiser that my mom and dad were attending, they thought, oh, this is a great thing. We'll bid on this, uh, and we'll uh, hopefully win this foursome. And they did. Now, uh, this foursome was actually sponsored by a family friend, member of the club. His name was Rick. And the foursome included club rentals, four free buckets of golf balls for the driving range, and two golf carts. My dad nor my mom are much of sports people. They're here, and they would fully admit that. And so they thought, what a great thing. We'll bid on this. If we win, we will gift this to our seventh grade son, and he can go and enjoy a foursome at the Spokane Country Club. They won. An invite I did. And so I invited Kyle, Landon, and Nick. Now, the last two names, Landon and Nick, you probably remember because they were in a story about the human torch that I told about two months ago. So that gives you a bit of context, right, as to who these people were. So <clears throat> I had golfed actually with Kyle before, so I knew that, uh, that he had, uh, had kind of known the, the game and, and knew how to uh, swing a club. Landon and Nick, I'm not sure, had ever swung a golf club in their entire life. This is just the foursome that the Spokane Country Club was hoping for, I can imagine. <laughs> and so we started out hole number one. We started with two of the first drives slicing pretty hard into the next fairway. So two jumped into the cart to try to make their way to go find their errant drives. And I set up to tee off number three, and I hit an incredibly hard, screaming line drive into the shoulder of Landon, who was driving the cart which then prompted him to immediately fall out of the cart, <laughs> Kyle to lunge over to grab the steering wheel to take over the out-of-control cart. I, as a seventh grader, 13-year-old, thought this was the funniest thing I had ever seen in my entire life. And I will still say, it is one of the funniest things I have ever seen. The foursome that was waiting behind us to tee off did not think it was that funny at this point. So things continued this way for uh, the next few holes, and it culminated in us needing to call over a group to help us push a high-centered golf cart out of the sand trap. <laughs> and it was at this point that the marshal, club marshal or, you know, whoever uh, that the title is of that person, finally makes his way to us and begins laying into us about our country club etiquette. They had informed us that the sponsor for the foursome, the person who had gifted this uh, to be auctioned off, had been uh, called and requested and that this person would now have to come and chaperone us for the remainder of our round. So Rick showed up and with about as much grace and love as a man <laughs> could have in this situation, set us straight, again, in relative kindness and love. We finished our round. And we had later learned that the country club voted, their uh, board of directors voted, that no longer golf rounds could ever be given as a fundraising option uh, unless the person was present to golf with the people that won. So this single instance, I think, is actually a bit like the incarnation. And here's how. We were wayward and lost in the world of golf existing in our own created chaos until Rick came to be with us. In his presence, peace and calm was reestablished. 
and we returned to play the game of golf in the way that it was intended to be played. Carlo Corretto says, his coming and his presence are not only the result of our waiting or a prize for our efforts, they are his decision, based on his love freely poured out. His coming is bound to his promise, not to our works or our virtue. We have not earned a meeting with God because we have served him faithfully and our brethren or because we have heaped up such a pile of virtue as to shine before heaven. God is thrust onward by his love, not attracted by our beauty. He comes even in the moments when we have done everything wrong, when we have done nothing at all, when we have sinned. This is the reality of Jesus' coming. He came to be with us, not out of duty or obligation or pity, but simply because of a divine love for you and for me. You see, while we were still wayward, the incarnation is always driven by love. In the beginning of his ministry, when Jesus chooses the twelve, he gives three specifics as to what they are being called into. We read this in Mark 3, 13 through 15. The second one is this, that he might send them out to preach. And the third is that they would have authority to cast out demons. But the first says this, he appointed the twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. To be with Jesus is the first and foremost call of the life of the disciple, and that call remains true for us. There's no set of standards that needs to be achieved. There's no predetermined life that we have had to have lived, no baseline of action we need to agree to, just a willingness to be with, to accept what might be born anew in whatever situation we find ourselves in. A willingness to acknowledge when our lives leave us exposed and scared and vulnerable. A willingness to go trusting in God's love. And this can be the purpose of our lives. The constant turning towards and moving with Jesus. When a life is lived in this way, we will have meaning, we will have direction, and we are freed from all that holds us back. And we are given new life. And the call extended to us all, the incarnation always brings joy. The incarnation is not just something for us here in this space. It's a cosmic reality. God came for the entire world. And what started in creation cannot be stopped. This seems pretty clear when you look at Christ's birth. It wasn't a convergence of all of the right things coming together at the exact right time as much as it was God's divine love breaking through, becoming flesh. Debbie Blue talks about this reality when she says, amazingly, the Christ child is born anyway. God is incarnate in the world. There's no conceivable space, but God comes. God comes and keeps Coming. Christ is born, escapes Herod, makes his way through the, through the royal paradigm, lives, dies at the hands of another kingdom, but is resurrected. There's no room for Jesus in the inn, in Herod's kingdom, in the royal paradigm, anywhere, but that doesn't seem to be much of a deterrence. 
you can't seal it out, God finds a way in. Although it might not be how we imagined or even how we wanted, the love, peace, hope, and joy of the incarnate God always finds a way. The incarnation is a grand miracle because every other miracle either points to it or springs forth from our God who became one of us. At Advent, we are brought back to its importance, reminded that our lives are intimately connected to the divine, not because of our beliefs or behaviors, but because of withness. Although there is pain and hurt and chaos, much of which we create ourselves God's original intention can be realized in our lives right here and right now. Jesus assures us of this with a profound truth in one of his final prayers, John 17, 1 through 3, when he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not just a thing that happens when you expire. It's not only a place you go when you die. It's withness. It's knowing God and Jesus in the here and now. And this is what we truly celebrate in Christmas. We celebrate, as Brian Zahn says, the lost beauty of God's good creation being recovered in the incarnation. So this Advent season, rest in the peace and find hope in the stories of a teenage mother, a convicted criminal, a group of 12 looking for purpose, and a country club foursome. For these speak to the power of witness and how it might give shape to our lives. Amen. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite up uh, worship team again. We're going to sing through one more song. And my encouragement <clears throat> is take a moment, sing along if you need to, be quiet if that's helpful, and think about what God's witness actually looks like in your life. God, we are incredibly thankful. that you have come to this place to be with us, driven by love, that we may have purpose, that we may be free, that we may experience the beauty and goodness that you have always desired for this place. May we be a people that lives into that. May we be a people that understands our call as disciples. Lord, we celebrate this reality in Advent. We are thankful for it. And we exclaim once again our love for you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.